Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and real autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're discussing car accidents and positive identifications. To do this, we watched Body of Proof Season 2, Episode 17, titled Identity. So, let's get into it. So, we open on a very dramatic ER scene. Um, So, they're wheeling in a severely injured 21-year-old woman, and we hear that it was a car accident, and that she lost her pulse at the scene, and she has possible skull fractures. And then, we also hear them bringing in a second passenger that was ejected from the car, and we see her being wheeled in right after. And this second passenger is unconscious, she sustained head trauma, and she has a flail chest. So real quick, a flail chest is when a portion of the rib cage is separated from the rest of the chest wall due to blunt, like severe blunt trauma, like from a car accident. And this causes the affected portion to be unable to contribute to normal expansion of the lungs, which can lead to long-term disability and like even death. It's a very serious condition. So the second passenger starts crashing and they start CPR on her as she's being wheeled back to the ER. We then flash to Dr. Megan Hunt, the Emmy of this show, and she's in the ER examining one of the girls after she could not be resuscitated. Megan uncovers the body, which was completely covered with a sheet, to show extensive facial trauma. So the ER doc tells Megan that he usually just meets the transpo, who calls it transpo. When she said that, I was like, is she trying to like sound cool be like oh, i work for the emmy we need transpo yeah i was <laughs> i was wondering that too i was do do other places call it transpo i've always called it just transport yeah like transport but, like I'm, ca- I'm calling my transportator yeah so that was just some slang she's trying to be cool she's trying to be hip you know but the er doc says that he usually just meets the transport people from the emmy's office and this is a green flag because usually for an er death a scene response doesn't usually need to be made so the transporter will go to pick up the body from the hospital without an investigator needing to go along so megan says that she isn't an ordinary medical examiner she's not like other girls she doesn't say that part i'm just adding that (laughs) (laughs) and she says the sooner she gets to the bodies the sooner they can move on and i kind of had a hard time believing that an me in a major city would have time to run to all the er deaths in that city that they had to cover right so i don't know what this one i don't know why this one was like a special one for her to go to i mean i think just in our county alone there's like 10 plus hospitals so she has time to run to every single mva that happens with when like, people are being brought in. That's a whole lot of work. In a major city, too. Like, there's car accidents all the time. This is Philadelphia that they're quoting that they're yeah, in. But, yeah, so she made it seem like she does this all the time. She's like, I'm not like other medical examiners. And I'm like, so do you go to every single car accident? Because that's crazy. It's like, I'm not like other moms. I'm, cool I'm a cool mom. <laughs> so our pathologists would not be the ones that would go to the hospital to examine a decedent if it were a coroner case uh sometimes a deputy coroner would go if they decide a scene response is needed and like we just said they don't necessarily go to the hospital for mvas motor vehicle accidents for anyone that doesn't know now i'm starting to use cool slang mvas in our office our deputies only go to the hospital usually if it's like a pediatric case and that's just that's just how our office runs i don't know if that's the way every every place runs But Megan leaves the ER a little while later and is stopped by a man who asks if she's from the Emmy's office. He's the father of Donna, the woman who passed away. He asks if Carrie was drunk. Megan asks who Carrie is, and we find out that it was the other woman in the ER who was driving the car. 
Just then, we see a man who was sitting behind them with his wife in the ER get up angrily and confront Donna's father. So this angry man is Carrie's father, and he doesn't like that Donna's father is accusing his daughter of drinking and driving. The two men get into a physical fight in the ER, and Megan calmly walks over to a flower vase, takes the flowers out, and dumps the water on the two of them. I totally thought she was going to smash the vase on the floor. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, she's going to get broken glass everywhere in an ER while two men are rolling around on the ground. Like, I actually, I didn't think she was going to smash it on them. I thought she was going to smash it like next to them where this like front reception desk was just to get their attention. I know, I know. I thought that too, but still the glass would shatter everywhere. The ER would hate her. (laughs) Because, you know, she's not like other Emmys. She just smashes glass everywhere. I'm just kidding. She's a cool Emmy. She's a cool Emmy. (laughs) She says that Donna is dead and Carrie still might die. So if these two men want the truth about what happened to their children, they have to not kill each other before she can find out. And she walks out like the boss bitch she is. We cut to CSI and a detective investigating the cars that were involved in the accident. The investigator says that the geography and the skid marks indicate that the Mustang was the one that caused the accident. So when the brakes of a car are applied suddenly, the wheels of the car are locked and the car loses the ability to steer and this car will then slide straight ahead. So skid marks are usually straight, which provide the evidence of the distance over which braking took place. Anti-lock brake systems, ABS, prevent braking and locking and skidding by turning the brakes on and off several times a second. The driver can maintain steering and control, and a vehicle equipped with ABS may leave faint intermittent skid marks. So the driver's wallet was found on the floorboard, and the CSI hands it over to the detective. The CSI has collected more property from the scene that has been thrown from the car and hasn't lined up on the table, and she has the passenger's purse, which was found near her body. The purse belonged to Donna Worley, the girl who passed away. The detective asks about the condition of the seatbelt, and the CSI says there was nothing wrong with it. However, she did find an empty beer bottle in the driver's side door pocket. At the morgue, Megan starts Donna's autopsy. She is dictating and says that she is a 21-year-old woman who was ejected from the car. She has multiple facial lacerations, a bilateral pelvic fracture, and flail chest. So these are common injuries seen in motor vehicle accidents, and some other common injuries can be broken femurs, which are the bones in the top of your leg, from contacting with the dashboard, so the dashboard will just like crumple on top of someone's legs and just break the femur. Broken ankles can also be seen from seat moving forward and wedging the foot underneath. And internally, you can sometimes see a lacerated aorta or liver or spleen lacerations, which will all obviously cause a lot of internal bleeding. So Megan says that this should be a lesson to wear your seatbelt. I don't know if this is true or not. I don't even know where I've heard this. I feel like I've just like made this up in my head. But did pathologists or like somebody in the medical field like help create seat belts b- based on autopsies because people were getting in car accidents? <gasps> Did they? I don't know. I feel like I've heard that somewhere and I don't know if it's true or not. And I couldn't find anything online. So I don't think it's true. And I think it's just something I made up. I was going to Google it. Hold on. Who invented seat belts? An engineer, George Cayley. Seat belts were invented by an English engineer. He used on his glider in the mid 19th century. Not a pathologist. <laughs> Wow, this is a whole Wikipedia page on the seatbelt. Maybe, oh, maybe I'm thinking of airbags. Oh, is it airbags? Well, now I'm going to need to, because we talk about airbags later. (laughs) Now I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do some Googling. (laughs) When it's not my turn to talk, I'm going to do some Googling (laughs) about airbags. (laughs) 
So the tech notices an old scar on the decedent's foot, and he thinks it looks like it's from a past surgery. She also has a chalky white substance on her pants legs, and Megan says she already swabbed it and sent it to the lab. The detective is lining up the clothing to photograph, which is a green flag, and says that Donna's blood alcohol was negative and that the other girl who was driving was drunk. He can't make sense of why someone would be sober, not wear a seatbelt, and have their drunk friend drive. It doesn't make sense. Megan says they won't know why Carrie was driving until she regains consciousness. Megan looks for any sign on Donna's body that shows inhibited range of motion, and she lifts her slightly and sees a strange wound on her back, kind of like on her left side slash shoulder area, and asks the tech to get a probe. We cut to an investigator, I think, or so actually, I think he's also a doc or someone. We find out later he's like a chief. He's like the chief, I think. So we'll call him that. We cut to the chief informing Donna's parents that their daughter's cause of death appears to be multiple traumatic injuries. There is also police present, and the father asks why they're there. One officer asks if they knew their daughter's whereabouts before she got into the car. They say the driver of the car was underage, but over the legal limit for blood alcohol level. Donna's father says that Carrie, the presumed driver, was always dragging Donna somewhere against her will. The mother is furious and asks why police haven't arrested Carrie if she killed her daughter. The police say that if their information is correct, Carrie will be arrested when she regains consciousness. So back at the autopsy, Megan's boss walks in and says they found something strange on Carrie's x-ray. Megan correctly guesses that it was a bullet because the wound that they found on Donna's back is a bullet wound. She shows her boss Donna's body with the probe going straight through from side to side, indicating a through and through, aka a perforating gunshot wound. And Megan says this wasn't a traffic fatality. This was a murder. A murder. What murder? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had I to. I love it. So back at the hospital, they're talking to the ER doc, and he says that the bullet is lodged in the posterior apex of the left ventricle of the heart. So posterior in anatomy terms means back of, and the apex is the tip of the left or right ventricle. So he basically is just saying that the bullet's lodged in the backside of the tip of the left ventricle of this heart. And for reference, your heart has four chambers, two atria, and two ventricles. The right atrium receives oxygen-poor blood from the body and pumps it into the right ventricle. And then that right ventricle pumps it to the lungs where it becomes oxygenated. And then that oxygenated blood is pumped back into the left atrium, which then pumps the oxygenated blood into the left ventricle to be pumped to the rest of the body. So it kind of just all goes in a big circle around. He goes on to say that the heart is inflamed, but no signs of cardiac tamponade. So a cardiac tamponade is a medical emergency that occurs when there are abnormal amounts of fluid accumulating in the pericardial sac, which is the sac that holds your heart and surrounds it. And the fluid compresses the heart, which will lead to a decreased cardiac output and can also lead to shock. So the detective asks when they can have the bullet, and Megan explains that the heart is like any other tissue. When you hurt, it heals. So the acute phase of healing takes a couple days, so if they were to remove the bullet too soon, the heart wall will rupture. So the detective asks if they can have the bullet in a couple days. Just then, Carrie's father comes rushing in, having overheard this, and says that they can forget about getting that bullet if it's going to risk his daughter's life. The doctors say she may be able to recover just fine without removing it, and then the police tell him that the bullet is the best clue 
to figuring out who shot his daughter and killed Donna. Carrie's father says that when his daughter wakes up, she can tell them everything that they need to know, but Megan asks what will happen if Carrie remains in a coma and the dad gets quiet. Just then, the detective gets a page that the garage where the car is being investigated has something for them. The police leave to go to the garage and Megan stays behind. She asks Carrie's father for permission to see Carrie, and then she goes to kind of look at the Carrie's wound, and she sees that she's in a coma and has severe facial trauma. Megan notices a wound on the upper right arm and asks the parents if Carrie was wearing long sleeves. The parents didn't know because her clothes were, were removed in the ER. Megan asks permission to examine them uh, because... They might help figure out what happened. So the parents tell her that, yes, she can. So back to the garage that they were just called to, the CSI is telling the police that they found paint transfer on the other car that matches the paint from Carrie's Mustang. So this is Locard's exchange principle in action. Any two objects that come into contact will exchange some type of trace evidence. So... The Mustang hit the other car, but according to the witness, it was the only other car involved in the accident that wasn't hit by Carrie's car during the accident. So the CSI thinks that the contact between this car and Carrie's Mustang was made prior to this car accident. So the CSI then says that they found something under the car's driver's seat. They reveal that it's a gun, but, like, why didn't they start with this major information? I feel like that is something that you should have seen right away and said. It was so dramatic. She's like, we found paint transfer from this car and this car. And they're like, well, yeah, it was a car accident. <laughs> no duh. Well, we also found a gun. <laughs> it's like, okay, well. <laughs> she's waiting for the big reveal. She's like, all right, they weren't impressed with the paint. Here's the gun. <laughs> Start with the the least exciting news and then go up from there. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. That's how they always do it in these shows. And everybody loves these shows. I'm going to start. I'm going to start giving people. Doing that during autopsies. No, I'm just going to start telling. <laughs> the doctor's like, did you find anything interesting? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. He has kind of a big heart. Also, there's a bullet in his <laughs> liver. <laughs> just like keep, keep the big secret. Keep the big reveal. Keep him wanting more. Just be dramatic about it. So, the gun had seven live rounds and one empty. The car is registered to a Rob Martin. And then back at the morgue, Megan is trying to figure out how Carrie and Don were positioned when they were shot. She wants to know if this was a random firing or if someone was aiming at them and this was, like, something with purpose or motivation. And then, so based on the bullet path, she thinks that the girls were both turned away from the gun, which suggests that Donna may have seen the gun from the passenger side and yelled out, and then the girls turned away instinctively. And I wanted to point out that I thought it was cool that her and one of, like, the other pathologist chief ladies there, they were reenacting and, like, moving in different positions because... That's what we do in the autopsy suite, too. Like, if we have a case where somebody was shot and there is too many holes and we're trying to, like, move the arm and we're like, oh, it makes more sense if his arm was up like this, that you can see where the bullet path is going. Yeah. You kind of, like, reenact. And that's kind of, like, what they were doing. So I thought that was cool because that's kind of accurate. Yeah. But there was no bullet hole in the car door. And based off of Carrie's x-rays, the bullet was only mildly deformed. And this suggests that it had to have come through an open window. The detective asks if anybody knows how high off the ground the window opening of a 95 Mustang is, and then he leaves to go investigate. 
At the hospital, two other detectives are questioning Rob Martin, who is in the hospital after the accident, and his hands are bandaged, and he says that they're from airbag burns, which he didn't know was possible, which is possible. Also, wait, hold on. <laughs> I looked up the inventor of airbags, and I don't think it's a Damn it. <laughs> Where did I find I this information in my head? No, because now that you said it, I don't know if it's like a subconscious thing, but I feel like I remember reading somewhere that like pathologists helped invent something <laughs> and, i just like, don't know what the something is <laughs> it's something related to car accidents like because they were seeing so many deaths and i forget but airbags i didn't see anything about pathologists it was i think it was uh there was actually two different people like several people were like inventing the same thing at once um but the American John W. Hetrick invented it or like came up with the idea after he was in a car accident with his wife and daughter and his like wife like put her arms up to protect their daughter. And he's like, oh, if only there were something that would do that <laughs> instead of like somebody else having to <laughs> put their body in front of somebody else. Yeah. So that's what I found. I will remember this fact and I will get back to you <laughs> i keep thinking it was somewhere in that book stiff by mary roach so i'm kind of like i'm gonna go find up. that book in my house and look through it yeah but anyway so we all know airbag deployment as a safety measure in car accidents but there are injuries and risks involved with them including burns especially chemical but also thermal and friction related burns so the detective says that they won't be able to swab for gunshot residue because of his burns and his hands being bandaged and they tell Rob Martin that they have evidence that the driver of the Mustang was drunk and that they sideswiped him before the accident. And then, so remember the paint transfer. And that they also know that both the driver and the passenger were shot. They also tell him that they found a gun under the seat of his car. He says that the girls did sideswipe him and he did go after them, but just to get their license plate number. He claims he didn't touch the gun. So the detectives still need the bullet to tie Rob Martin and his gun to the shooting. Back in the morgue, Megan is saying that the wounds from the gunshot were survivable and it was in fact the crash that killed Donna. A detective walks in and says it is unlikely based on the angle of the shot that the girls were shot inside the car through the window. He thinks they got in the car to get away from whoever was shooting at them which would explain why Carrie would get behind the wheel of the car even if she was drunk because they were both injured and running for their lives. This also explains the erratic driving and why they sideswiped someone before even getting into the major car accident. So they need to find out where the girls were before they got in the car. Meanwhile, the tech found out what the chalky white substance on Donna's pant leg was, and he says it's kryptonite, or the closest thing to it. I got so excited. <laughs> My nerdy little heart was so excited when he's like, oh my god, it's kryptonite. I'm like, shut up. What? <laughs> so he says a new mineral was recently discovered in a Serbian mine that almost exactly matches the chemical formula of kryptonite, which is sodium, lithium, boron, and silicate hydroxide. So this is a real thing. In a mine near Jadar, Serbia, a mineral with the chemical formula of sodium, lithium, boron, and silicate hydroxide was discovered. When a mineralogist, Chris Stanley, looked up this formula on the internet, he got a lot of hits, but mostly from the fictional material of kryptonite, as described in the movie Superman Returns. This new mineral, however, didn't contain fluorine, like in the movie, and it, it is white, not green. But other than that, it was a perfect match for kryptonite. How crazy would it, would it be if 
Donna was Superman. She's a Supergirl. The murderer is Lex Luthor. Oh my god. <laughs> so this mineral was on Donna's pant leg, and Donna is a geology major at school and an intern at a museum, and this museum was the one that recently received a sample of this chemical kryptonite, and Megan asked the tech to check for trace on Carrie's clothing from the hospital. Two detectives go to question fellow geology students, and they say that they were working with her last night before she took off, and she said she was late meeting Carrie. They say that they were going to meet at a campus bar about six blocks away, but one student says that Carrie and Donna must have gotten their wires crossed because Donna left to go meet Carrie, and then Carrie showed up looking for Donna. And then after she realized Donna wasn't there, she left to go find her, so they're all confused about where each other are. As the detectives are leaving, they notice a group photo on the wall of the lab. And there's a woman on the end who looks like she's kind of excluded. She's kind of just keeping to herself. And the rest of the group is standing arm in arm. And the other woman is kind of standing off to the side, not wanting to put her arm around Donna. One of the students says that the woman was Susie Foster. And she didn't get along with Donna because Donna and her were up for the same scholarship. But Donna won. The student says that Carrie stared at the picture, too, just before running out and looking for Donna. So the detective takes a photo of it, and they bring Susie in for questioning, and she admits that she wasn't a fan of Donna, but that doesn't mean that she shot her. The accident happened at 9.30, and Susie got out of chem lab at 9, so the detectives ask which way she drove. And Susie says she didn't want to lose her parking space and that she walks to class. It's a 20-minute walk across campus. She says if she had used the gun, wouldn't somebody have heard the shot? And she also says that she wasn't upset about Donna getting the scholarship she wanted. She was upset that Donna would play the, quote, poor little sick girl because she had lupus. So Megan runs an ANA test, which comes back negative. So an ANA test detects anti-nuclear antibodies in your blood, which are antibodies that attack your own body tissue. So someone with an autoimmune disease like lupus would potentially have a positive ANA test. However, the girl in the morgue is negative. So the girl in the morgue does not have lupus and was in perfect health. So just then, Megan has a horrible revelation. She says that the girl in the hospital has a bullet in her heart and the heart is inflamed, which is a sign of lupus. So lupus can cause inflammation of the heart, like endocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart valves and walls, myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis, which is inflammation of the sac around the heart. So Megan thinks the two girls got mixed up in the chaos of the accident because they were the same height, same body type, and had the same hair color. They think the paramedics at the scene must have misidentified them, and everybody in the morgue just never questioned it. So the dead girl they are examining is actually Carrie, and the girl in a coma is Donna. So they bring Carrie's father in, who was, I gotta say, understandably outraged at this mix-up, and that his daughter is actually the one who died in the car accident. And he's still convinced that his daughter's the one in the coma. He's, like, very much in denial. Megan asked the father if Carrie had surgery on her left foot, and he says, yes, in high school she had a screw put in her foot, which lines up with the body in the morgue with a scar on her left foot. So green flag, because scars can be helpful in making certain identifications if people are visually unidentifiable. And Megan also shows the father the x-rays of Carrie's foot that they had just taken in the morgue, proving there's a screw in the foot and that it is, in fact, Carrie who is dead. They explained that neither of the girls had IDs on them and that Donna's bag was found outside the car near Carrie's body, so they assumed that 
Carrie was Donna, and Carrie's wallet was found inside the car underneath Donna's driver's seat. So they assumed that Carrie was Donna and Donna was Carrie because their bags were switched, basically. Because the girls looked so much alike and had so much facial trauma, paramedics mistook the girls for each other, and it was the most tragic misunderstanding. He tells them to get the bullet out to find out who killed his daughter, but they tell him that it's up to Donna's family now if they will be able to retrieve it, and they can't force them to comply just like they couldn't force him to comply when they thought it was Carrie with the bullet in her heart. He says that his wife collapsed at the hospital when they found out that there was a mix-up and that she has to be under sedation now. And he says that he will sue every last one of them for the horrors that he has been put through. At the lab, the tech is running Trace on Donna's clothes from the hospital that they thought were Carrie's. And the tech says that her sleeve and the whole right side of her pants were saturated with diluted acetic acid solution. The tech says that it was a stop solution that is used to stop developing when developing photographs. Two detectives go to Carrie's off-campus apartment and they find it odd that there are four locks on the door and bars on the window even though she lives on the second floor. They also find pepper spray in the drawer so they think that she was afraid of someone. After talking to campus police they find out that Carrie had a stalker. She got letters and secret photos of her sent to her and one day she came home and swore that someone had been sleeping in her bed. I can't imagine that. That is horrifying i can't like she lived alone right they weren't roommates in the show she just like came home and was like i think someone was in my bed like that's i think uh, yeah i think they were just best friends but they didn't live together yeah the police didn't do much because she had thrown out the letters and photos they checked with all local photo processing places but didn't come up with anywhere that had developed these photos of carrie they don't think Carrie told her parents because her father is overprotective and would have taken her out of school if he knew she had a stalker. Back at the office, they find out that Donna's heart had started bleeding the night before, so they had no choice but to operate and take out the bullet. So, the detectives finally have their bullet after it was removed, and they find out it's not a match for Robert Martin's gun. And... No one saw Susie Foster's car on the highway around the time of the accident, so they think whoever shot the girls is whoever Carrie's stalker is. They think he took photos of Carrie, and Donna's clothing was covered in an acid bath that's used to develop photos, so they think the girls went to confront whoever the stalker was, and things got violent. They're also trying to figure out why the group photo of the geology students made Carrie stop and stare at it for so long before going to meet Donna and eventually lead to Carrie's death. Megan asked Donna's mother if Donna had ever mentioned that Carrie had a stalker, and the mother says no, but now it makes sense why Carrie never wanted to be alone and was always dragging Donna places. She also said she found something in Donna's room that might be useful, and it's a box of Carrie's things. She thinks that Carrie gave it to Donna for safekeeping, and Donna's mother had the box with her because she was hoping to give it to Carrie's parents, but things got heated between them, and Carrie's parents wouldn't take it. At this point, I told just this theory before, um, I thought that Donna was going to be revealed to be the stalker because she had like this box of Carrie's things under her bed, but I just watched too much of the show You. 
But, like, he has boxes. He has, like, stalker boxes for everyone he stalks. Honestly, that thought also crossed my mind when I was watching this. But then she pulls out this, like, really nice engraved box that says, like, carry on it. And it's, like, a beautiful wooden box. And I'm like, that'd be crazy. Like, in in you, it's just a shoebox for, like, each person. <laughs> like, can you imagine if in the show you, Joe, had, like, an engraved box for everyone he stalked? Aww. No. <laughs> Aww. He's a stalker. <laughs> But then she'd yes. be like, look, I made this for you. Jessica, please, no. <laughs> it's, it would be a box of bloody tampons. He collects tampons, remember? It's gross. <laughs> but then it wouldn't be, it's not I like guess, like, things. it would be more suspicious if he did have engraved boxes. And that's why he uses shoe boxes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you said, you said, aw. <laughs> so Donna's mother thinks that Carrie gave Donna the box for safekeeping. Megan looks in the box and finds photos and other keepsakes. She finds a small envelope labeled dorm key with a piece of what looks like some kind of tape, like a just like film or like dirty tape inside. I don't know what was used, but it was something used to collect some kind of evidence. It's weird. So back at the lab, the tech looks at a, the group photo of the geology students and points to one guy in the photo and goes, that's the stalker. And he assumes this because he has a t-shirt on for the Arbus Center, which is an artist commune downtown that develops their photographs manually. The detectives go to the Arbus Center with their guns drawn, and they find all these photos of Carrie on the wall hung up all over. Does nobody else use this center? Right. Or did they ask? Is this an independent room that is locked most of the time? Yeah. Is it like in a room at the Arbus Center or is this like the whole center? Because it's just full of photos of Carrie. Like nobody thought this was suspicious. Nobody else think this was weird? Did nobody think this was weird? Like I, they were like crazy photos. So there's also photos of who we know now is Donna in her hospital bed, but the stalker doesn't know that and thinks that it's Carrie in the hospital bed. So the detectives now have to rush to the hospital because they think the stalker is going to try to kill Donna, thinking that it's Carrie. So Megan's at the hospital using the hospital microscope without permission because she's Megan. But she's a cool mom. She's, cool. she's a cool pathologist. I, she comes in and she's just like, I'm not like other Emmys. Let me do my thing. But literally. Literally, though. He's like, what are you doing? You can't be using this. And she's like, I'm solving a murder. And he's like, okay. <laughs> a murder. <laughs> He's the best guy around. <laughs> <laughs> what about all the people he murdered? What murder? <laughs> Sorry. We quote TikToks too much. I just almost said vines because I'm ancient. Possible <laughs> red flag because she's trying, but they just let it slide. This guy's like, what? This guy's like, I don't have time for this. He's, Bye. Like, he's like, what murder are you trying to solve? Well, that's pretty neat. And then he's doesn't care anymore. <laughs> that's crazy yeah that's crazy you're trying to solve murder with my microscope so she's trying to find out what was on that tape in carrie's keepsake box that donna had in her room and she says that it looks like a fungus from the fingernail of the killer which is just so i'm so confused how this was obtained how did she get this tape that had the this fungus did she like so carrie like see fungus on her bed and was like this is weird did she see like a little dirty spot and she's like that's not from me and like taped it was the tape on something that the stalker touched and maybe it just like started growing i'm so confused how this was obtained it made it seem like carrie did her own investigating and like used the tape to collect evidence and kept it in an envelope but megan goes to donna's hospital room where 
Susie walks in holding a syringe. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I know. Megan asks how she went from being in love with Carrie to wanting her dead. And Susie denies ever being in love with Carrie. But Megan says that she had left traces of her fingernail fungus from her left thumb in Carrie's apartment where she had broken into. So Megan had noticed Susie's nail fungus at the police station when they brought her in for questioning. And they do kind of show her hand on the show like holding the photograph and one of her nails does look weird and i remember thinking that but i was like oh maybe they just have like an unusual fingernail but i didn't know that was supposed to tell me that she's the killer (laughs) such an obscure thing to notice Susie said that carrie was supposed to be her best friend not donna's and that she was always there for carrie even when she didn't know it that's called stalking she literally, she's like, she didn't even know, but I was always there for her. And I'm like, you were stalking her. That's why. That's so dramatic. This is a one-sided friendship. It's just called stalking. <laughs> she says, Carrie showed up one day with Donna and screamed at her for what Susie put her through. And Susie says that she was just Carrie's biggest fan. She says that Carrie laughed at her and mocked her. And that's when she pulled out the gun. She tells Megan that the syringe she's holding is 100% glacial acetic acid. Her and Megan begin wrestling, and Susie almost gets her with a syringe before the police burst in and distract her so Megan can knock the syringe out of her hands, and Susie is arrested. I also want to say, these shows make it seem like forensic pathologists are constantly getting into physical altercations with serial killers. All of the time. Like, they are, like, serial killers and stalkers and whoever are out to get these specific pathologists it's always a theme in harrow yeah in harrow in bones it's like oh that serial killer that has a vendetta against me for putting him away and i'm like this why (laughs) they make it seem like you're constantly (laughs) going to be literally like wrestling i feel like it's also ncis oh yeah like they constantly make it seem like you were gonna have a nemesis i'm sorry (laughs) we work in the real world you don't have any nemesises at least we don't maybe because we're just techs just attack i'm just a tech i don't get it i don't get a nemesis maybe a pathologist nemesis is the da for always calling them to court (laughs) i don't know but they constantly make it seem like their lives are in peril or like their family like they're like megan i have to get my family megan's daughter has been kidnapped like at least once oh my god that's the same in harrow doesn't the serial killer get get his daughter oh my god yeah they kidnap oh my god these shows are all the same but we love all of them but also the episode ends with the chief one of or she she becomes the chief at the end i think but she calls both of the parents like both pairs of parents in and the dad is still wanting to sue and she's like you're not gonna sue us and then like she doesn't say it like that but she's like no 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 no. you loved donna like she was your own and then donna's parents come in and they it's a touching moment where they give them carrie's keepsake box and they ask them to be a part of donna's life and then they all just decide not to sue. She's for real, just like, you're not suing us. Here's a box. And then it's it. And then when, she, when the other parents were like, well, we want you to be a part of her life. In my mind, I'm thinking of like quadruple parenting situation. Like, oh, you're also going to be parents and you're going to co-parent this kid. It's, which not, it's probably not what it is, but that's what I'm thinking. I don't think so, <laughs> but that's hilarious. Like, you we, get they them have to, this like, move weekend, in. I'll get them that weekend. <laughs> I, was gonna just, I thought, I was thinking, like, they have to move in together. Like, <laughs> but, no, I think they would just be like, oh, we just want you to be a part of her life. Mm-hmm. 
I thought that part was nice when the parents were like, "You cared for her, like she was yeah. your own," and blah, blah. but the, the when the the chief was like, "Yeah, you're not gonna sue us." So I was like, oh. <laughs> but I did also like the other guy, chief, like defending that it wasn't their fault. Yeah. He's like, "We weren't the first at the scene. We were not the ones making." He's like, "We weren't even the second or the third. How is this our fault?" Yeah. But I would say if they're not facially recognizable, like they said they didn't have IDs. And usually that's what people go off of, like the photo ID and the face. And if you can't do that, you got to do dental or you got to do DNA or you got to do fingerprints. Like fingerprints. Did they not get fingerprints? My God. Yes, they weren't facially recognizable. And I feel like we've had situations like that in our office where we have this ID that either like the hospital or somebody gave us because that's who they think they are but like we it's our job to positively id somebody before releasing them so you don't if we have this case i think we have had a case like this in the past where we've had presumed ids but we cannot do like the final releasing until we ourselves are sure that this is the body that we think it is right so they should have done they definitely should have done more than just go off of what the first responders said. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the hospital also didn't make sure they had the right person. That's true. That's on that's on the hospital. Like they they were treating Donna who had lupus without knowing that it was someone who had lupus. They thought it was Carrie who didn't have any history of lupus. So like they should have known. Those are bad doctors. <laughs> Everyone is bad at their job in this episode. Mm-hmm. That's what we're learning. <laughs> Nobody does their job, but they're all bad at it. (laughs) Megan's just doing all the jobs. So for our true crime portion this week, uh, what really caught our attention with this episode was the storyline of mistaken identities. Obviously, that was the entire premise. And this made us think of a very well-known case. So in April of 2006, two young women who were both students at Taylor University in Indiana were in a horrific car accident. Their names were Laura Van Ryn and Whitney Serac. Both women had remarkably similar features and builds, and one of the women did not survive the crash, and it was originally reported that the decedent was Whitney. The other woman lay in a coma for five weeks, and this was originally assumed to be Laura. Whitney's parents did not do a viewing of her body before making arrangements, preferring to remember her as she was before the accident. The Van Bryn family kept a constant vigil over who they thought was their daughter for five weeks. However, when the woman in the coma finally awoke, she was asked her name during a therapy session and she scribbled out Whitney Serac. Dental records confirmed the mistaken identities and the coroner's office apologized for the mistake. Whitney returned to her alma mater, Taylor University, 10 years after the incident, to speak at a memorial for the victims, which included Laura Van Ryn, three other students, and a staff member. She said, My family held a funeral for me. A lot of people wonder what will people say about you at your funeral, and I know. She also went on to say, The Van Bryns loved me like I was their daughter because they believed I was their daughter. And even after I wrote Whitney and their world changed and they knew I wasn't their daughter, they still treated me like I was their family. Four months after the accident, Whitney returned to school and graduated three years later. She said going back to school was difficult like she wasn't the same person. 
The accident had left the left side of her body crushed and she was unable to speak above a whisper. She also said she alternated between feeling sad for her friends who died, guilty for being the only survivor, and anger because she wanted to be left alone. Today, Whitney lives in North Carolina with her husband, Matt Wheeler, and their three children. I think she also said, I was doing some reading, so she's very spiritual, and she said, like, her experience afterwards, she, like, was brought closer to her faith, which I thought, which I thought was nice, and she has a very beautiful family now, which is really nice, but, like, this is crazy that this happened. I can't believe that even the coroner's office, like had the mistaken identities so they had to have released the body like Mm -hmm. because whitney it was laura but was buried as whitney and like i understand the family not wanting to do a viewing but there should have been some kind of positive id before that but this was a while ago fingerprints and i mean i don't know what state the body was in it seemed like a horrific accident like it seemed really bad um i mean five people died Mm -hmm. yeah i think they were in an accident with a a semi I think is what hit them. Oh my god. So yeah, they were Yeah, definitely it's horrible. It's horrible. Gone facially. That was the first thing I thought of when we were watching this episode and it was like two very similar looking women in a car accident. I was like they definitely are like there's no way they're not basing it off of this true this true story. Mm-hmm. I love it when they're like this isn't based off of true events and it's like sure Jan. That's literally almost every episode is so so similar to like something real that happened and then you think wow how did they make this up they didn't they didn't i like how they just in this in this show instead of them so in whitney and laura were both blondes in this show they're like they were both brunettes totally different (laughs) it's It's different different. same but different (laughs) but yeah this is a crazy story i remember my mom talking about this story so i was i was like 13 ish when this happened, I remember it was all over the news, and my mom was just like, I can't imagine what those parents are going through. Like, both of those parents. Like, that's just such an insane trauma to go through as a family. And I think also, if I'm remembering... Oh, was it for five five weeks you're going through that? Yeah. And I think it was Laura's boyfriend also started to notice... Like, there were signs early on that something wasn't right. And I think, like, Laura's boyfriend, who was staying at her bedside, but it was actually Whitney, was like, I don't know if this is Laura, but maybe it's just because she was in an accident. And then it was revealed. Like, I, I I, forget what happened. I think, like, they had, like, a nickname that they called each other, and Whitney said a different name or something. And he's like, mm, that's not... That's weird. That's not right. And, yeah, I don't know. But I can't imagine how crazy and how awful that is to go through i just need to know how how the coroner's office went about the release of this body without the correct id i mean they they definitely thought they had the right id but i guess 2006 was a long time ago oh god and forensics has (laughs) not it is though it's 17 years (laughs) advanced so much 17 years ago that is a long time ago i mean in forensics times Forensics is so new within, like, the last few decades. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, something that's been around for 100 years. It's probably only been around since, like, the 80s. Certain types of forensics. Maybe the 90s. Certain types of forensics. DNA, for sure. DNA is the 90s. OJ. That was big. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like in 2006, maybe they didn't have the, like, right technology or means to identify like we do now. Yeah. 
I mean, we can speculate, but I really have no idea. Because, like, they had dental. Because they eventually... Why didn't they just do dental They the used beginning? dental when she wrote... You had her in the office. No. Can you... I, I'm just trying to think. And there's probably an article about what the aftermath was. But, like, she was still... She still had facial trauma. And she wrote that her name was Whitney. But she couldn't really speak. And so... They had to like exhume Laura's body, who they thought was Whitney. So like they still probably weren't totally a hundred percent sure until they got the dental. And like I don't even know. Like that's uh, yeah. God. I would recommend reading more about this case, you guys, because it's insane of a story. Yeah, it is crazy. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of three green flags and one red flag. So in our opinion, this episode of Body of Proof does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new discussion. Bye! Bye.